Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Our study today is the seventh in our series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Today we're considering Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and I've entitled our study, Hezekiah, Praying in Turbulent Times. Hezekiah lived in turbulent times, uh, so do we. Perhaps we can learn some things. I hope we can from the things that uh, Hezekiah did and failed to do and also the prayer that, uh, that he prayed. Just by way of introduction, uh, let me say a couple of things about King Hezekiah. His name means the Lord strengthens. Incidentally, uh, along with your notes, you should also have a chart uh, that is entitled Isaiah and his contemporaries. That is not, the while the notes are original with me, the chart is not, and I have uh, put the uh, uh, the source of that material uh, at the bottom of the chart, and and I am using it uh, with permission. Now let's uh, let's begin again. Uh, the the name Hezekiah means uh, the Lord strengthens. He was a reformer. He he reigned from 715 to 687. However, he began uh, to reign uh, at least as a co-regent with his father. Ahaz, uh, prior to that, his, uh, he became a co-regent with his father in 729, and uh, when his father died in 715, he became, of course, the sole king. Uh, he did the same thing, Hezekiah did the same thing with his son, Manasseh. Um, uh, Manasseh began to reign along with his father, uh, Hezekiah, in 695, I believe, yeah, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's right. But anyway, let's uh, notice the passage there from 2 Kings chapter 18, and it tells us a little bit about the character of Hezekiah. It says, And he, Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Uh, in terms of historical background, and I put a little bit of that in your in your notes there, you'll recall, and we talked about this in our last study, that in 722, the northern kingdom, uh, which was known by the name Israel, sometimes it was referred to as Samaria, which was the capital of, uh, of, Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel, it was captured uh, by the massive empire of the Assyrians. 722 B.C., they captured the Israelite capital of Samaria. You'll recall we talked about their carrying away the citizens and then bringing other people from other parts of the empire down to where the had been Israel and now was just uh, the southern part of the Assyrian Empire. And in fact, it was from uh, from the intermarriage of the few Jews who were left who either escaped or could uh, couldn't be found to be carried away into exile. Those uh, those folks intermarried with the people that they were bringing in from other parts of the empire, and as a result, the Samaritans came into existence, and those were the people who were so hated by the Jews when you read the, uh, the New Testament account. But anyway, uh, at the time that that happened in 722, uh, King Ahaz, along with his son Hezekiah, were, were reigning at the time, and um, they were ruling as co-regents, and Judah... It, 
began to exist as a vassal to Assyria. They had to, uh, Ahaz agreed to pay tribute, uh, in fact was forced to pay tribute uh, to the powerful empire of the Assyrians. However, in 715 BC, the uh, following the death of Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah became the sole uh, monarch there of Judah. And he initiated all kinds of uh, religious reforms. He, he got rid of all of the idols, the stuff that they were doing up in the mountaintops. He began to make all kinds of preparations as far as uh, preparing for any sort of war or siege that might happen to Jerusalem. Uh, there was a tunnel that was dug up under the Jerusalem wall so that because uh, the only water supply for Jerusalem was on the outside of the wall. So there's a tunnel dug so that uh, the city, if it came under siege, would have a, uh, a, a good water supply. And then he even closed up the outside of the water supply so that if they did, uh, if the Assyrians did come and, uh, and lay siege to Jerusalem, that they would not have access to that water supply. In, in addition to all of that, he increased all the fortifications, even putting up uh, an additional wall around the city of Jerusalem to, uh, to help protect it. So uh, reinforcing walls, all kinds of things like that, that that he has been doing. He also made an alliance with, uh, with Egypt for Egypt to, uh, to help uh, uh, protect him in case the Assyrians uh, ever did attack Judah. Now that was something that was not pleasing to God and it was something that Isaiah, that God spoke through Isaiah a number of times uh, saying that that was not a good thing. God wanted uh, Hezekiah to trust in him not to lean on the Egyptians. In fact, I put in your notes a passage there from Isaiah chapter 30 um, and notice it says, uh, and this is uh, 30 verse 1 and following, where the Lord's speaking through Isaiah, and he says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. So in addition to these good things, the religious reforms that Hezekiah was making and reinforcing the walls and those kinds of things, which were great things to do, Hezekiah was, uh, was leaning or tending to lean on the Egyptians as well, which was, uh, which was not a good idea. And in fact, once Sennacherib came down, the first thing he did was, according to Assyrian records, was to capture 46 fortified cities in Judah. And uh, this was in around 701 B.C. And, uh, and laid and began to lay siege to Jerusalem. And as a result of that, Hezekiah said, whoa, I've, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have cut off the tribute that my dad was paying. I shouldn't have made that alliance with Egypt. And notice uh, that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, now that's 701 B.C., he sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, Lachish was a, uh, a city to the west of Jerusalem, uh, a fortified city where most of the Assyrian army was at that time. Uh, he sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me I will bear. 
And Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. In other words, what, what Hezekiah did was, uh, I believe the scriptures say that he paid 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold to Assyria. The, the, the price was so heavy that he had to clean out the treasury and then he had to clean out a lot of the silver and gold of the, uh, of the temple itself. And remember Solomon had just covered everything mostly with gold and he was even stripping gold off the doorposts of the temple in order to pay this tribute uh, to uh, Sennacherib the Assyrian king well that Sennacherib was not uh, was not satisfied with that uh, with that late tribute payment and so he decided what he wanted to do was he wanted Jerusalem to surrender to him and he was just going to take over the whole thing now that's uh, that's that's sort of the background and so we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 36 there in your notes and and again the year is 701 BC it says in the 14th year of King Hezekiah Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them again Assyrian records say there were 46 fortified cities that uh, that Sennacherib took and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army for those of you who read ahead of time you kind of know what's going on here but let's uh, let's just clarify things just a little bit the main body of the Assyrian army was at Lachish they had laid siege to Lachish, which was a major city in, in Judah. And so what Sennacherib did was he sent a delegation along with an army to begin to lay siege to Jerusalem, which was to the east of Lachish. And uh, there were three major players that he sent over there with the army. There was, there was, there was one called a Tartan. He was the commander-in-chief of the army. There was one called the Rabsaris, who was the chief official. And then there was another called the Rabshakeh. And that's the one that's talked about in Isaiah 36 and 37, the Rabshakeh. Now, the Rabshakeh, as far as we can tell, was a cupbearer to the king. Now, it seems fascinating that you would send the cupbearer to the king along with the commander of the army. And as it turns out, the cupbearer is going to be the chief spokesman. In fact, as far as we know, he's the only one who did the talking to the Hebrews at the time. And the only way to, as far as I can tell, to explain that is that because of his presence with the king all the time, his cupbearer, obviously he's the one who tasted the king's wine, he tasted the king's foods so that the king would not be poisoned uh, either way. But in the course of doing all of that, he spent a lot of time with the king. And, of course, the king was always seeing foreign dignitaries, people who came in who spoke various languages. And apparently what had happened, this Rob, this Rob Shaka, this cupbearer to the king, had developed a great linguistic skills. And he is the one who is going to be the spokesman. Now, he's going to speak in Hebrew. Uh, so you've got these three guys along with the army who are going to meet Hezekiah's delegation outside the walls of Jerusalem to talk about surrender. Uh, that is, Jerusalem surrendering to the Assyrians. And uh, the Rabshakeh is going to speak to them in Hebrew. 
And one of the things that, uh, that the delegation from King Hezekiah said, well, hey, look, how about talking to us in Arabic because the things that you're saying are going to scare these folks back here in Jerusalem. And the Rob Shaka responded, that's exactly what I want to happen because if you folks don't capitulate, you, and the scriptures say this, you are going, before it's all over, you will be drinking your own urine and you'll be eating your own feces. And so the whole conversation that goes on within earshot of these people who were on the wall at Jerusalem was to frighten them into either rebelling against Hezekiah so, uh, so that they would surrender. Obviously, that would make it much easier and make the time much shorter for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, as he sought to take the... Uh, take this southern kingdom of Judah. So that's that's kind of where we are. Uh, the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. Verse 13, Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, that would be Hebrew, Hear the words... Now notice at this point, as he begins to announce what is going on, that is, he's calling in the name of the king of Assyria, he's calling for the surrender of the city of Jerusalem. And as he does this, notice the contrast in the terminology here. When he speaks of Sennacherib, he either refers to him as the king or the great king of Assyria. But when he talks about King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he just simply refers to him as Hezekiah. So there's a there's a way in uh, he's he's drawing a marked contrast here. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. What's he talking about? He's talking about surrender. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. In other words, going to do the same thing with Judah that he did with Israel, going to haul people off and bring in other people. That way, there's a, there's a, the, whole, the nation of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, becomes a real melting pot instead of, uh, and that way it really reduces the, uh, the incidence of rebellion that's going on. He says, uh, he goes on to say in verse 16, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you. Notice that's twice he's referred to Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, as one who would deceive his own people. Beware lest Hezekiah misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, he's talking about the fact that the, that Sennacherib has been so successful in all his wars against these various nations. And these other nations are, are worshiping false gods. And uh, those gods haven't been able to deliver those nations. They have fallen before Sennacherib. And, he says, and it's going to be the same way with Judah and Jerusalem. Where are the gods of, of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharvarim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now notice, 
This is like throwing down the gauntlet. What he is doing, he's referring to King Hezekiah as a deceiver, deceiving his own people. And he is also throwing down the gauntlet here, challenging the Lord, saying there is no way on this earth that this God that you serve, this Yahweh, is going to be able to defend you against the mighty imperial king of King Sennacherib. But notice in verse 21, it says, but they were silent. That is the, the delegation that Hezekiah had sent out there, the three men. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. So apparently Hezekiah had anticipated the fact that when the delegation from Assyria showed up, what they were going to do was issue an ultimatum for surrender. It says, Then Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, those are the three men who were out there talking with the Assyrians. Joah was the recorder. They came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So they are in mourning. They are in grief because of the terrible things that the Rabshakeh has said. This is going to happen to not only Judah, but particularly to Jerusalem. And they, uh, they, they show their mourning by tearing their clothes. So that brings us to chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. Notice he's mourning as well. He tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. That's, uh, that's more of a incidence of mourning and contrition. And he went into the house of the Lord. Now, he didn't go into the Holy of Holies. And the reason we know that is because there was only one person who could go into the Holy of Holies. Who was that? That's right. That was the, uh, the high priest. And he, could only, and he couldn't go in there any time he wanted to. He could only go in there once a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement, the uh, Yom Kippur. But, uh, so, the, so notice, the first response of Hezekiah when he gets word, when he hears what his delegation tells him, that, uh, that the delegation from Assyria said, particularly this, this Rob Shaka, who speaks for the king of Assyria, his first response is that of mourning and contrition, and he goes to the Lord to seek God's face. And then notice, but he did one other thing. Verse 2, it says, And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Isaiah, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. Notice this, a picture of helplessness. It's a, wom uh, it's a picture of a woman who is ready to give childbirth, but her labor has been so long and so difficult that now that it's time for the child to emerge, there's just no strength left in her. And so it's a real picture of helplessness here. Verse 4 says, It may be, and that is Isaiah, we, Hezekiah has sent us to ask you to intercede for the people of Judah. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer. See, there's the prayer request. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. What remnant? Well, remember, there are 46 cities that have already fallen, and a lot of these folks are already being hauled away. 
And so there's this remnant here is left. God's always got his people. There's always, there's always a remnant. Let's continue reading because there's a, there's a little interesting twist that occurs here. Verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned. Now when it says he returned, remember he's outside the city, city walls of Jerusalem. And now he's returned to the, uh, to the main army where King Sennacherib of Assyria is. He says, The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Uh, so, the, so they had left one city and had gone to another city, and the Rabshakeh found him. And then it says this in verse 9, Now the king heard con- uh, concerning Terhaka, king of Cush. Cush is Ethiopia. He has set out to fight against you. Alright, so so somehow Sennacherib gets gets word, okay, we've got part of our army, a good portion of our army that's already laying siege around Jerusalem. They're they're not real close, they haven't set up siege mounds, they haven't put any siege machines in place, but they're out there ready to whatever they have to do. They've surrounded the place, nobody's leaving Jerusalem. But now we've got the word that there is a uh, force that's coming from the south, from Ethiopia, to fight against the Assyrians. And so Sennacherib is wise enough that he knows he doesn't want to fight on two fronts. So he is going to leave Jerusalem for a short period of time. He's going to go take care of these guys that are this army that's coming up from uh, Ethiopia. And then once he does, then he'll come back and he'll deal with Jerusalem. However, he does not want the folks in Jerusalem to think that this withdrawal is something that's permanent. He wants them to understand that this is temporary. So what he's going to do is he's going to send a letter back to that effect. Notice what it says. Uh, he, he hears about this, uh, this army coming up. He, he set out. Uh, to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus uh, shall you speak to Hezekiah king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Notice, previously, uh, the Rabshakeh said, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. In fact, he says that twice, essentially. But now, from the lips of the king of Assyria, it's the, the God that you worship is the one who, who is the real deceiver. It says, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed. In other words, don't misinterpret our withdrawal. We're going to take care of these folks from Ethiopia, and when we do, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. They're going to be coming back to deal with these, uh, with these folks. Now notice Hezekiah's response when he gets this letter. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now get that picture in your mind. Now again, he's not going into the Holy of Holies. He's just going into the temple compound somewhere. But he's got this scroll that he's received. And I'm sure it had it was rolled up, had sealing wax on it, and uh, you know the imprint of the maybe the king's ring or some official's ring there in the wax. And so he undoes that and he kind of opens it up and he reads it. And it's just 
terrible things that the that that the the Assyrian king has to say about Judah and Jerusalem, but particularly terrible things about the ability of the Lord to defend His people. And so, get the picture here that Hezekiah takes that letter, that scroll, and he takes it up and he opens it out, and he I can just see him moving his hands from from in. Inward, from the inward position to the outward position where he's straightening that thing out. In other words, saying, uh, Lord, you need to read this. You, you just, uh, and of course the Lord obviously knew what the contents were. But it's at that point it says in verse 15, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Now here's, here's the prayer that he prays. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Notice, as he opens his prayer, he doesn't say, Oh, Lord, you need to read this letter. We are so scared you've got to do something quick. He doesn't approach God that way. Remember from our very first study in this series, when uh, the disciples came to Jesus said, Teach us to pray, as John the baptizer taught his disciples to pray. Jesus said, okay, when you pray, say this, Our Father who art in heaven, and then what's the next? Uh, that's right, hallowed be thy name. There's a, there's a sense in which we approach God with, with awe. We approach God with praise and thanksgiving on our lips. That's what Hezekiah is doing here as he approaches God. You alone, God, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you're the one who's made heaven and earth. You're, you're the sovereign. You are the creator of the universe. And then he says in verse 17, Incline your ear, O Lord. And again, notice the word Lord there is in all caps. He's using the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. In other words, what he says that they've been doing, he's exactly right. I mean, you know, we've been getting the reports and the, and the nations have been falling. And even in our own nation here of Judah, all these fortified cities have, uh, have fallen. Truly the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So, well, you know, obviously the gods of those lands couldn't defend them anyway. They were the work of men's hands. They were nothing but idols. Notice in the left-hand column of your notes, there's a passage there from Psalm 115. And this is, this is a wonderful passage. Uh, notice it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Here's the contrast. But their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk. And those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Notice the tremendous contrast. See, this is the problem with what we sometimes refer to as golden calf religion. 
You know, you all of a sudden we feel like, well, you know, I, I really need to get in touch with the Lord. So you go in there to the chest of drawers and you open it up and pull your T-shirt back out of the way and there's that little, there's that little golden calf or that idol of somebody. And you set that thing up and you dance around and you say all kinds of things and feel real good because you're doing something religious. But that idol can't see anything that you're doing. He can't hear all the songs that you sing and the praise that you're saying. And then when you get through, you feel real good because you've done something religious and then you stick it back in the drawer and put the T-shirt back on top of it and close the drawer and then you go out and live any way you please. That's not the way you deal with the true God. Because God knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. And that's the contrast that's being made here. Back to our, our text, verse 20. So now, here's the petition. So now, O Lord our God, save us from His hand. That's, that's what we want you to do, Lord. That's the petition. Please save us. Just like Peter stepping across the... The, the bow of the ship or the stern of the ship, wherever he happened to be, into uh, and, and walked on the water a step or two. And then all of a sudden began to sink. And what was his cry? Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out and grabbed his hand. Hezekiah is saying, Lord, save us. But notice the motivation for saving us. It's not save us because... I've done all these reforms and we've gotten rid of all the idols in the land and we, the folks have really turned back to you and, and I, I know that must be pleasing to you uh, and we've done all this and done all that and so it, it looks like uh, maybe we, we sort of deserve for you to, uh, to, to deliver us. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, Now, O Lord, save us from His hand. Why? Here's the ultimate highest motivation for deliverance, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. How concerned are we for God's glory? Again, the Lord's Prayer that we pray so frequently. Hallowed be thy name. But then uh, that, that part at the end that was not in the original, it was, it was added I think about the third century, that the church added to it. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we, we even end the Lord's Prayer with this thing about you are the awesome one. And that's exactly what Hezekiah is doing here. So he's prayed and he's, he's petitioned God to deliver Judah for the sake of his own glory. That is the sake of God's glory. And then in verse 21, it says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, All right, Hezekiah prayed. Here's the answer to the prayer. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. At this point down through verse 29, God addresses specifically Sennacherib, and then he's going to have something to say to encourage Hezekiah, and then he's going to address the issue of Sennacherib again. So let's let's just read. We'll make a few comments. Incidentally, because of a lack of space, uh, the rest of verse 22 was left out. But uh, in verse 22, and it's it's interesting to read it. Uh, Judah is portrayed as a helpless virgin before a rapist, and and God is saying. That's the way you view Sennacherib. That's the way you view Jerusalem in that light. Well, let me tell you, it's not going to work out that way. Verse 23, Whom have you mocked and reviled? 
against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Who do you think you are, Sennacherib? I'll tell you who you've lifted your eyes against. I'll tell you who you've raised your voice against. Against the Holy One of Israel. You see, the Lord has taken notice of what's going on. He goes on to say, By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And then God says something very interesting. Of course, what God says is always interesting, but in verse 26, He says this, He says, Have you not heard... Now, again, remember now, He's, he's, he's talking to Hezekiah in terms of the answer to the prayer, but this is addressed to Sennacherib. This, is what's, this pertains to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you, that is you, Sennacherib, should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. Notice he's saying, I'm the sovereign one. You think that you're hot stuff because you've been able to take all of these kingdoms. Well, let me tell you something. This is all part of my plan. What you're doing is part of my plan. And the fact that you're able to do it is because I have empowered you to do it. Remember, God, what is it, Psalm 70, I think it's 75, verses 6 and 7. Promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. God sets up one. He puts down another. Remember, that was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar later on would learn. And that is God sets up the one that He wants to set up. And that's what God's talking about right here. Notice verse 28. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. God is omniscient. He says, hey, I know where you live. I can deal with you. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Notice, you are acting like a brute beast. I'm going to treat you like a brute beast. I'm going to put a hook in your nose just like you would a, a cow or an ox. And, that, and of course, the nose is so tender that you don't have to tug hard and that animal will go with you whichever way you want to go. I'll put that hook in your nose and, and lead you the way I want you to go. I'll put a bit in your mouth. And I can, you can get a horse or a mule to do whatever you want to with the right kind of bit in its mouth because it can be very uncomfortable. You say, you, you're acting like a brute beast. I'm going to treat you like a brute beast. And at this point, there's a word of, uh, of encouragement for Hezekiah himself. Verse 30. He says, And this shall be the sign for you. This year, this year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And notice essentially what he's saying. He's saying, look, you've got this army that's surrounding you right now. Surrounding Jerusalem. And apparently the siege lasted for uh, close to two years. And of course, nobody could go outside. They had plenty of water inside. 
and what food they could grow inside, that was fine. And God assures them. He said, this year, you're going to eat what grows of itself. Next year, you're going to eat what springs up from that. You know, the, the seeds fall off and stuff, stuff grows up from that. But he said, then the third year, what's going to happen? says, this, the, the remnant that's inside these city walls, they're going to go out and they're going to repopulate the land of Judah. They're going to be planting vineyards. Uh, they're going to be sowing and reaping. So what's the message there? The siege is not going to last for three years. It's, it's going to be over before that third year comes around. And then he promises, notice the last sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, you can count on God's promise that this land that has, where, and all these people who have been taken away, this land is going to be re-inhabited. The siege is going to be lifted. You can count on that. Then God takes up the, the whole issue of Sennacherib again. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. What city? That's right, the city of Jerusalem. Or shoot an arrow there. You not the, 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 they came near with the siege, but not close enough to get an arrow over the wall. Or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Why? Verse 35, For I will defend this city. Who's going to defend the city? The Lord himself. I will defend this city to save it because of all of the reforms that Hezekiah has made and because of this beautiful prayer that he's prayed. Is that what he says? No, of course not. He says, I will defend this city to save it. Why? He mentions two things specifically. First of all, for my own sake, for his own reputation. You've been bragging that these, uh, these false gods, uh, Sennacherib, you've been bragging that these false gods couldn't stand up against you. Let me tell you what, you haven't come up against the true God. You're not, you're not getting in this city. You're not even shooting an arrow in this city. You're not even going to put a, a handful of dirt in terms of a siege mount up against these city walls, that's not going to happen. And secondly, not only for God's sake, for His reputation, but also for the sake of my servant David. Now David's been dead and in the tomb for years. What does he mean, my servant David? Second Samuel chapter 17, uh, God makes the, what's known, what we call the Davidic covenant. That is, he promises David that there will always be someone, a descendant of David, who will sit on the throne. And of course, that's ultimately fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. Now, how does all of this turn out? Verse 36 and following, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 185,000. Now notice, it didn't happen right away. There were two years where stuff was growing on its own, apparently inside Jerusalem in those environs. So they had to wait for that siege to be lifted. But God did promise that the siege would be lifted and that the land would be repopulated. And of course, God did exactly what He said. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Verse 37, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. Well, of course, you, you, your army's been killed. He returned home and lived at Nineveh. Why Nineveh? Because that's the capital of Assyria. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, 
Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ezerhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. There's a real interesting poem that was written about this. Uh, this is not in your notes, but it's a poem entitled The Destruction of Sennacherib. It was written by Lord Byron and published first in 1815 in, in something called his Hebrew Melodies. Now, when I, when I first went to college, I, uh, I had registered as, a, uh, as an English major, but after two quarters, I decided that was probably not the way to go for me. But I am told that this is written in what's known as anapestic tetrameter. So those of you who are English majors, you will understand that far better than I do. But the idea is that when you read it, you get the feeling of the beat of the galloping horse's hooves uh, as the Assyrians ride into battle. Now, I'm not going to read this entire thing, but I do want to read just a few lines from it so you'll sort of get the, uh, get the idea. Again, this, the title is The Destruction of Sennacherib, as written by Lord Byron, B-Y-R-O-N. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed." And he goes and he talks about those who were asleep and he talks about the horses and what happened to them. Then let me read you the last few lines. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown, and the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal, and the might of the Gentile unsmote by the sword hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, it says, slew 185,000 in one night. Well, what do we learn from this? So I point you to our conclusion and final applications. First of all, uh, God often uses the trials of life to develop uh, our faith and to mature us. Uh, again, notice that there were apparently close to two years of siege. So when God says, uh, I'm going to deliver you, it's not, I'm going to deliver you tomorrow. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to trust me. Now think about, think about what, it would, what it would be like inside those city walls. Every time you look out there over the wall, you've got this encampment. During the daytime, you'd be able to see all the tents that were surrounding this, this whole area. And at night, you would see all of the campfires. And that, this would be day after day after day. And you remember from, uh, from what, your, what your dad and, and your grandfather told you about what had happened back in 722 when another king of Assyria had taken the, uh, the city of Samaria after a long siege. That during, during that siege, there were people that they got so desperate that they were actually cooking and eating their own small children. And so what God is calling upon you to do is to trust Him that He's going to deliver the city. He's going to care for the city.
Not going to be any arrows shot into the city. Not going to be any siege mounds up against the city walls. And within three years, folks within the city can go out and repopulate the land and plant vineyards and sow and reap. And it's going to be, it's just going to be great again. But it's not going to be that way tomorrow or the next day. It's going to take some time. And notice James says in chapter 1, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever. Notice it doesn't say if, it says whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. What's perseverance? That's that stick-to-itiveness. How do you develop stick-to-itiveness? You've got to stay under the load. That's the only way you can. The only way you can learn to persevere is if the load stays on you for a while. It's like lifting weights. You know, you can look at the weights and say, boy, I, boy if I do that, I, I'm going I'm to get real strong. I'm going I'm to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger used to look. But I'll tell you what, none of that's going to happen if you don't, unless you start lifting those weights, unless, you've got, unless you retain those weights and those muscles are put under strain and they begin to develop. He says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, and God certainly is able to make us stand the test. And remember what from a previous study, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's verse... 13, no testing, no temptation, no testing has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And what's the way of escape? It's the way of righteousness. It's doing the right thing. It's hanging in there and trusting God and not giving up. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. God is maturing us. Are we patiently trusting in the Lord? Secondly, even when it seems that everything is against us, the truth is, is that God is for us. And there's that wonderful passage from Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And then he talks about those, those five golden links in the chain of salvation for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the preeminent one among many children. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also glorified. And whom He glorified, these He... I'm sorry, He justified. And those He justified, these He also glorified. And then He says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Why would He turn into a chiseler now? He's already given us His very best. When I read this, and I think of seeming like everything is against us, I think of, I think of, uh, of the story of Jacob. Remember, Jacob had his favorite son, uh, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his ten older brothers. And as far as Jacob knew, the, the boy was dead. Uh, everything led him to that, uh, to that conclusion. 
But there was a famine in the land, and the ten older brothers were sent down to Egypt uh, to buy grain. Jacob had heard there was grain in Egypt. And come to find out that after all these years, uh, 13 years in, in prison, then another seven good years, 20, and this was the second year of the famine, so this was 22 years later. You know, they came down. Joseph was the chief operations officer or the governor over all of Egypt. The only person ahead of him was Pharaoh himself. And he recognized the ten brothers, but the ten brothers didn't recognize him. And remember, he accused them of spying and said, uh, and, and to make a long story short, he says, finally, he says, look, the only way you're going to prove to me that you're really not spies is you were telling me about your younger brother. You bring your younger brother down here and let me see him, and then I'll know you're telling me the truth. Now, of course, what Joseph wanted to be sure of was that those brothers hadn't done the same thing to Benjamin that they had done to him. So one of the things that Joseph did was he took a hostage. He took Simeon as a hostage, and that was to guarantee that they would eventually come back. And when they came back, they would bring Benjamin with them. Well, the boys got their, got their food and headed back to, uh, uh, nine of them at least, headed back to uh, the land of Canaan, and they got back and told their dad all the things that had transpired. And Jacob's response to all of that was, Joseph is no more. He considered... Joseph was dead. Simeon is no more. He's written off Simeon since he was taken hostage. And now you want to take Benjamin, and then the next thing he says is, all, everything is against me. But see, that was not true. It just looked like everything was against him. Because what God had done is he had sent Joseph down there ahead of time, put Joseph in a very unique position, and now he was going to take this family of about 70 or 75 people and bring them down to the land of Goshen there in the Delta region of, the, of Egypt where they could raise their uh, flocks and herds and where they could uh, grow crops and do whatever they wanted to do. And they could grow from a little family of 70 plus up to eventually more than 2 million people. So while it looked like everything was against them, God really was working for them. And then thirdly, although Hezekiah was, was a godly king and he was a reformer, he initially made an alliance with Egypt for protection against the Assyrians. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, repeatedly condemned any sort of dependence upon Egypt. And the results of that unwise alliance with Egypt included, first of all, Hezekiah having to humble himself before the Assyrian king. That was when he started. He said, okay, I was wrong. I, I will pay the tribute. And he started ripping the gold off the doorposts of the temple in order to satisfy the king, which, of course, did not satisfy the Syrian king. And, of course, it also included Hezekiah's loss of all those fortified cities and the, the time that Jerusalem was under siege. But you see, the point is, when all the props were removed, leaving Hezekiah helpless and totally dependent upon God's merciful defense, then God acted on behalf of Hezekiah and the nation. And remember, God delivered the people of Judah. What reason? For the sake of His own glory and for the love of David. That is, because of the Davidic covenant that He had made. God blesses His people today for the sake of His own glory and for the sake and for the love of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question we ought to ask ourselves when we look at the prayer that Hezekiah prayed is do our prayers reflect God's priority for His glory? 
Now, of course, Hezekiah wanted his people to be saved. He himself, I'm sure, wanted to be saved. He was a godly man, cared about his people, but he also cared about God's reputation, and God was being mocked. Does that disturb us? Do our prayers reflect that? Is it, Lord, do this for me just cause so-and-so, help so-and-so over here? Because, you know, she's, she's like a pillar of the church. You know, Lord, there, there are two kinds of folks in the world. There are the pillars and there are the caterpillars. And the caterpillars just kind of crawl in and out. But the pillars are the ones who really take care of things. And now she's sick and she can't take care of things. And, and Lord, just please take care of her, heal her so that she'll be able to get back and take care of things again. But before you pray that, why don't you pray that God will show Himself to be who He really is in the life of this person and in the life of that church. That that church, while as great as it's got people like this person who does all these things, that church is not dependent on that person. The church is, should be dependent only on the Lord Himself. And the glory of God should be our priority. And again, when we think about that poem that I read a little bit earlier, uh, those last those last two lines and the might of the Gentile unsmote by the sword hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. Lord Byron saw what was going on as he read the scriptures and he saw God's glory being questioned by Sennacherib and he said God showed who really was God. Is that the way we view God? I think sometimes perhaps our God is a little bit too small. The God we serve, the God who saves us, is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. He spoke and all the worlds came into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He is the one who breathed breath into something made of clay and man came to life. And He is the one who breathed the breath of life into us, those of us who know Him, and brought our dead souls to life and placed His nature within us. Praise be to God for His great mercy. May our priority be to glorify Him. Again, I remind you of the old Westminster Catechism. Question 1. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Praise be to God for His mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.